It's time for a special edition of Fighting for the Faith. This episode is uh, not in the normal rotation over at Pirate Christian Radio, but I put this together because it is timely and this is information that needs to get out. Today's special edition of Fighting for the Faith is going to be dealing with the takeover tactics employed by purpose-driven and seeker-driven prognosticators and disciples of Peter Drucker like Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford. This is an expose, if you would. You've got to listen to this edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And normally my program airs at, at Pirate Christian Radio uh, weekdays from 6 p.m. Uh, until I'm finished <laughs> every weeknight. And uh, today what I've done is I've put together a compilation of several segments that I've done in my program and put them, put them together in one downloadable and also, if you uh, if you uh, visit Fighting for the Faith or my uh, my blog extremetheology.com, you can actually take you can uh, grab an embed code that you can put this ed- special edition of Fighting for the Faith up on your website or blog. Why would you want to do that? This is a very important edition of Fighting for the Faith, folks. A lot of people don't realize that uh, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford are basically disciples of the late business guru Peter Drucker. And they've been, over the past two to three decades, been creating and promoting uh, Peter Drucker's business ideas and injecting them into uh, the churches and have been purposely trying to transition churches from being Bible-teaching, Bible-believing places where people can go and be shepherded by a pastor of God into uh, basically big corporation, big box, CEO-led churches. Now, the model itself, you're sitting there going, well, what's wrong with that? There's a lot of things wrong with that, and this edition of Fighting for the Faith is going to deal with that. But the way we're going to deal with it is uh, over the last month, I've done a three-part series on listening into and basically deconstructing and biblically critiquing the uh, methodologies and presuppositions of, uh, of, the, of a man by the name of Dan Sutherland, and he uh, works for an organization called Church Transitions. And Church Transitions, for years now, in fact, I think more than a decade or close to it, has been the official uh, arm of the purpose-driven movement, uh, Rick Warren Saddleback Church's uh, purpose-driven brand, uh, of transitioning a church from being a pastor-led church to hijacking it and taking it over and turning it into a purpose-driven church. And uh, the reason why I think this is important to get out to you is when you listen to these three parts all put together into one edition of Fighting for the Faith, you realize there's something terribly, terribly wrong here. Uh, Dan Sutherland uh, basically is teaching pastors how to engage in a corporate uh, hostile takeover of a church or to hijack a church. And the methodologies that he's employing in his teaching are chock full of lies, doublespeak, major and blatant scripture twisting, and this claim that God wants to give your pastor a new 
direct revelation for how to grow your particular congregation. But then again, God's sitting up there and he wants to give your pastor this new revelation, this new vision, but your pastor has to show himself worthy to receive this vision. And of course, if he quote gets this vision, then uh, and successfully demonstrates to God that he's worthy to receive the vision. Then the idea then is, is that the pastor casts the vision to the congregation. And at that point, anybody who critiques calls it into question, says, wait a second, pastor, that's not what you're saying doesn't jive with the scriptures. That person is thrown out of the church because they are directly contradicting the new vision, the new revelation that God supposedly has given to the pastor. There is no other way to describe this than to say that this is nothing less than cult-like tactics. The devil himself is the father of lies. If this was truly, if these were truly biblical methods from God, then why on earth is Dan Sutherland engaging in these absolute lies and scripture twisting that he's engaging in? Why is he telling pastors to, that to, rather than to follow what the scriptures say, to make themselves worthy to receive a direct vision from God? And then, then after they receive this direct vision, why is he instructing these pastors that there's no such thing as a godly or valid critic? We're talking about, this is what you're listening to, what you're going to hear in this edition of Fighting for the Faith, is, really sounds like cultish brainwashing techniques, complete with cult-like scripture twisting, complete with new and direct revelations from God that cannot be challenged. Folks, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for you to listen to these, this episode of Fighting for the Faith and pass it on to anybody that you know whose pastor is considering making a transition to becoming seeker-driven or purpose-driven. If These are the tactics and the ideas that are behind it. This is not from God. This is absolutely not from God. And I know that's a strong claim, but you need to listen to this edition of Fighting for the Faith and take notes and pass it along and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. So without any further ado, I'm going to switch over here. And what you're going to hear in succession are three segments from my radio program that have been put together into one and uh, for the purposes of coherence. Again, I cannot emphasize it enough. Pass this along. Email it to people. If you have a website or a blog, go to uh, fightingforthefaith.com, and you, 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 there's a section in there that says Special Editions. Click on the Special Editions button. It's on the side, <coughs> if it's not on the homepage, and you'll see this episode uh, there uh, basically with a, a, a YouTube-like uh, thing that you can put onto your website. Just click on the menu button, and you'll see the embed code, and you can copy and paste this and put it along. Uh, godly people who understand the scriptures have got to combat this and fight against it. It is time for God's people to say enough is enough. This is not biblical. We're challenging this on the grounds that these guys are bringing in new revelations that contradict God's word. And as a result of it, these methodologies are spurious and must be challenged at their core. So here we go. Here's uh, my three segments on Dan Sutherland's who is a, the official arm of the Saddleback Purpose Driven Movement for Transitioning Churches, speaking about how to transition your church. 
But uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to start a series, and uh, the series is going to be uh, what basically I'm called Deconstructing Church Transition, Inc.'s Strategy and Tactics for Hijacking Churches. That's what I've named it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically walk you through the process that they use to hijack a church, and we're going to begin today by listening to sound bites, relevant sound bites. Uh, just a few of them from the introduction to this whole church transition seminar. And the voice that you're going to hear is of a gentleman by the name of Dan Sutherland. And uh, I don't know if he's still with Church Transitions, Inc. or not, but uh, you know, we're, we're going to go backwards in time, and, I w- and we're going to compare what he's saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because this is really, really important. Because uh, one of the things I've learned is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and some of the worst heresies and methodologies have been introduced through the church by playing on the heartstrings of those who really have a heart for reaching the lost with the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what we're seeing in uh, the in uh, in these seeker-driven methodologies is the the pastors who are going for this really do have a passion for reaching the lost, really do want to grow their church because they think that that indicates uh, that they're, they're reaching the lost. And so, you know, you cannot fault them for their intentions. But the thinking behind this is really, really, not, it's not good. It's not, it's not even correctly biblical. And so we're going to walk our way through this stuff. Now, first soundbite here is uh, Dan Sutherland assuring people that he's going to teach them a process and that the process is biblical and practical. Here is Dan Sutherland from Church Transitions, Inc. I want us to talk about a process for leading change. A process. And let me say this clearly. I do not believe you need to make the same changes Flamingo Road has made. Okay, now Flamingo Road is the church that he was at at this time and that he helped transition into this model. Now, I want you to hear this again because I'm going to be referring to this little segment many times throughout this series that we're doing here at Fighting for the Faith. Listen carefully. And let me say this clearly. I do not believe you need to make the same changes Flamingo Road has made. Okay, now, the reason why I played that again, and I'm going to refer back to it constantly, is because he's engaging in something called doublespeak. What he just said there is not true. And I'll explain as we go. We continue. Did, did you hear that? The changes that your church needs to make will not be the same changes Flamingo Road has made. In fact, we don't even lift Flamingo Road up as a model of, of which changes to make. We do lift Flamingo Road up as a model of how to implement change. Because a process has been developed here that is both biblical and practical. Okay, now, that little thing, this is at the very introduction of the seminar. And there are two very blatant lies in there. Okay? One, that he doesn't, you know, he's not saying that you have to make the same changes, and I'll prove it later, you'll see. Two, that this is biblical. That's the second lie. Now, it may be practical, but it's not biblical. We continue. Now, soundbite number two here, let me just kind of walk you through this one. Um, He's going to be talking about the fact that he thinks that he sees God doing a new thing in the world today, and I want you to listen carefully, very carefully, to what he says that are, quote, movements of God. Here we go. 
You see, I think God's doing a new thing in the world today. And there's no place for this in your notes, but maybe on that blank back page right there, would you write this in? It's not on the screen. It's just in my heart. Let me just share it with you. There are four major movements of God in the world today. Four major movements of God in the world. Okay, now I'm going to stop right there. There's four major movements of God in the world today. What on earth is he talking about? And how do you know that there's, quote, four major movements of God in the world? Listen carefully. And I want to give these to you. Uh, The first movement is the cell church movement. Now, I did not say sell the church. I said the cell church movement, C-E-L-L. Now, you you know. Cell church movement is small groups. Okay, we've been talking about that extensively here, and we will continue to to talk about it because even now I keep getting emails from people who've had these really interesting stories occur to them in like the typical small group. I've been doing research on the small group thing now for the better part of three years, but I, I you know so I do not believe the small group thing is a movement of God. I think it is a rebellion against God's clear word as to who's qualified to teach publicly in the church that's a different story but let's continue this movement but let me just talk about it for two minutes the cell church movement is based on this principle for a church to grow large it must grow small okay listen to that why does my church have to grow large i question the premise So he's basically saying the cell church movement is a movement of God, and it's built upon the principle that in order for a church to grow large, it has to grow small. That's the paradox. That's the principle. For a church to grow large, it must grow small. Okay, question. Where in the Bible does it teach this? Where in the scriptures does it clearly say that in order for a church to grow large, it must grow small? He says this is a movement of God. He says it's based upon a principle. But it's not a biblical principle. We continue. One of the struggles for the American church that keeps us from seeing explosive growth is we are single-cell churches okay now notice he's a (laughs) what's preventing us from seeing explosive growth because obviously explosive growth means that god's blessing you okay that's the assumption all growth is from god is the is that we have a single cell approach what is that single cell approach a pastor shepherd who teaches and feeds god's flock and protects against false doctrine let's continue We have one cell. We have one church, if you will. It has one pastor. It has one authority structure. It has one direction. It has one set of relationships. And what happens is this contributes to the American church staying small. The average church in America today averages about 100 in attendance. Notice how that's a bad thing. That's the subcurrent of what he's saying. It's it. That's a bad thing. Can I tell you why? That's pretty much the maximum number of people that one person can take care of. And this is actually this is actually true. About 150 is the max that one person can take care of effectively. 150. That's it. 
one pastor. We use a chaplain model of pastoring. I'll be there when you're in the hospital. I'll be there to hold your hand. I'll be there for crisis counseling. I'll know your name. I'll go out to eat with you. I'll be available. You can have my phone number and call me at home. I will be your personal pastor. There's nothing wrong with that model except... (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that model except... Well, there is. That it limits how many people you can reach for Christ and take care of. Wrong. It doesn't limit how many people you can reach for Christ. It does limit how many people you can shepherd. Notice how he put the two together. How many, it, it limits how many people you can reach for Christ and how, it, <laughs> no, it does limit how many people you can effectively shepherd as a solo pastor. And still dispense the duties laid out in the book of Timothy and Titus as to the responsibilities that there fall onto the teaching office in the church. But he said it limits how many people you can reach for Christ. That is slippery, sneaky stuff there, and it's not true. You can reach many people for Christ. You may not be able to effectively shepherd them and disciple them in the faith. If you if you grow beyond 150 people, you might have to hire another pastor to help you out with the task. Once you get past 100 to 150, but it doesn't limit how many people you can reach for Christ. Notice he equated evangelism with discipleship. The two are different. Okay. All right. Let's continue with his uh, talking about cell groups. Here we go. The cell church movement is sweeping the globe today. There are two common characteristics of the 50 largest churches in the world. Two. Okay, notice. Two common characteristics of the 50 largest churches in the world. What's the assumption? All growth is good growth. Two common characteristics. Can I give them to you? Number one, they are all cell churches. Hello. If the 50 largest businesses in the world were all using the same software to run their business, do you know what every other business would do? Switch to that software. Notice the equation of the church to a business. See, they're all growing, so that has to be good. All growth equals good growth. That is not true. Well, the software of the 50 largest churches in the world today is called Cell Church. Okay, so there we go. That's the next one. Okay, now he's going to make another claim about a movement of God. Here we go. Here's the next movement of God. Movement. Second movement, contemporary worship movement. The contemporary worship movement. Now, this movement is sweeping the globe. And that's supposedly a movement of God. I would challenge it based upon this. So much of the contemporary music that we're getting, the lyrics coming from these so-called contemporary songs are complete pablum. They're not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. They're vaguely esoterically uh, erotic towards Jesus and kind of have an airy fairy spirituality to them. Few, if any, actually have any solid biblical meat in them at all. Okay, so I question whether or not that's a movement of God. How do you know the cell church movement is a movement of God? Oh, because it's growing. 
how do you know contemporary music is a movement of God? Because, it, well, it's sweeping the world. That means it's a, it's a movement of God. Does it? Is uh, Are we not going to consult our Bibles on this? We're just going to, because it's catching on like wildfire, that it has to be a movement of God? You do realize the whole book, The Prayer of Jabez, was complete, complete rank heresy and Bible twisting. Yet it swept through the church like a wildfire. Everybody had prayer of Jabez Jesus junk. They had prayer of Jabez Bible covers, prayer of Jabez uh, prayer shawls. Everybody was doing it. And I would say it was not a movement of God at all. It was basically just a real popular fad that fell on the church as a result of slick marketing. How about uh, the, the shack? I mean, that, that book is sold like wildfire, but it's not biblical. It contradicts the clear teachings of the word of God. I wouldn't say the shack is a movement of God. Let's continue. Okay. Now listen carefully to this next one. This is critical. Listen carefully. Around the world today, God is pouring himself out on churches that value lost people. Okay. He's basically saying... Listen, you adopt these things. It doesn't even matter what your theology is. God is, if you have, if you value lost people, God's going to pour himself out on you and your church. Let me back this up. I want you to hear this whole thing in context. Listen carefully to what he's going to say. Around the world today, God is pouring himself out on churches that value lost people. Some of them don't even have good theology. Some of them are in left field in their depth. But when they're focusing on reaching lost people, God is honoring it by them reaching lost folk. Okay. So it doesn't even matter what your theology is. You can be involved in rank liberal heresy. If you have a heart for the lost people, God's going to pour himself out on your church. And he's going to let you succeed by having a big church. Does that make any sense at all? No, it is actually clearly contradicted by the word of God. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be anathema. Liberals do not preach the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. They preach a social gospel based upon liberal pietism. They deny the word of God as being authoritative they're engaged in rank heretical practices like ordaining homosexuals. So don't tell me that somebody who's engaging in bad theology, who believes in left field bad theology, that God's pouring himself out on them because they, quote, have a heart for the lost. Notice that the real foundational thinking here is way Way off. All growth is good growth. And we know that God's blessing your church, even if you're heretics, because you have a heart for the lost and and your church is growing that. Listen again. Around the world today, God is pouring himself out on churches that value lost people. Some of them don't even have good theology. Some of them are in left field in their depth. But when they're focusing on reaching lost people, God is honoring it by them reaching lost folk. So there you go. doesn't matter what your theology is. God's going to pour himself out on your church, even if you're rank heretics, if you have a heart for the lost and reaching them. 
Yeah. <clears throat> Anyone have a problem with this? All right. Next interesting quote. Here we go. So how do we recover that, that seeker movement? At Flamingo, we used a phrase, I want to teach it to you, and feel free to teach it to your folks. Okay, this is so important because this is really, really 180 degrees wrong and contradicted by the word of God. And I will back it up. I want you to hear what he has to say. So how do we recover that, that seeker movement? At Flamingo, we used a phrase, I want to teach it to you, and feel free to teach it to your folks. Repeat this with me. Listen to it once. Church is so not about me. Would you say that? Church is so not about me. Now say it again. Church is so not about me. Now I want you to turn to somebody sitting near you, poke them and say, church is so not about you. Tell them. Now, once you raise that as a value in the church, you've done a phenomenal thing. You see, we believe at Flamingo Road that the people that God is most interested in on Sunday morning are the ones that are driving up and down this street and don't even know we're here. It's not about me and it's not about you. So when somebody comes to me and says, Dan, I really don't like the music, I say to them, I need to apologize to you. I somehow have given you the impression that church is for you. And I don't know what I have done to give you that impression. But, but I really want you to hear it's not. And, and I know the music's a stretch for you. It's a stretch for me. But we're not here for the already convinced. We're here for the yet to know Christ crowd. And, and, and we've got a fish with the bait. That they understand. So I hope that you can buy in to purpose over preference. Do you hear that phrase? Choose purpose over preference. Now, for a hundred years, the American church has said, no, it's all about us, all about us. No, it's not. It's really not about what I prefer, what I'm comfortable with, or what I want. And once a church crosses that barrier... God can do amazing things in the church. Okay, now we're gonna. I'm going to go back and I'm going to take this thing apart, but we have to do some biblical work first. All right, and in order to do that, I need you to open up your Bibles. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter twelve and First Corinthians chapter fourteen. I need to show something to you. Okay, talking about spiritual gifts. Now, we've all heard about spiritual gifts, and many of you are very familiar with them. You've taken inventories or tests that tell you what your spiritual gifts are. I don't put a lot of stock in those tests, per se. The reason why is because I think this is a little bit more organic than that. But uh, we read, and I want you to listen very carefully about what spiritual gifts are for. Now, we just heard him say, the church is not about you. I'm sorry. I made you think that the church is about you. This is a foundational error in seeker-driven, purpose-driven methodology. And it's actually an error that is causing rank, rank problems in the body of Christ. Okay. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now regarding spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however however you were led therefore i want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of god 
ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay. Now, the common good of who is the question. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The question that is on the table right now, I'm going to answer this from the scriptures, is are these God-given spiritual gifts for the common good of the world or the common good of the body of Christ? I'm going to answer this from the from the text. So, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of, of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit." The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, did you catch all this here? So all of these, the picture that's being painted is that all of us are given, all Christians are given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit for the common good, and we're likened as a body. Okay? We're likened as a body, as a unit that works together with our different gifts for the common good of the body. Continue. The body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Okay. If an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Okay. The whole body... Uh, if the whole body were an eye, there would be uh, there would be uh, no sense of hearing. If the whole body were an ear, there would be no sense of smell. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, notice here in 1 Corinthians 12, we're all given different gifts for the common good of the body of Christ. Okay. Now, if you go to chapter 14, it gets even a little bit more explicit. And there's a passage I wanted to point out to you there. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue uh, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So the purpose of that spiritual gift is for 
the building up of the church. I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that he may, so that the church may be built up. The text is clear. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to be exercised in the church for the building up of the church. When the church gathers to hear God's word, to take communion, it's for the building up of the church. Now, this is exactly why in the book of Acts, you don't have the church changing their service to make it seeker-driven for the Romans. Okay? Instead, the church sent missionaries out into the world to proclaim the gospel and to go fishing. But they didn't fish using deception, using lures. They fished with nets. The proclamation of the gospel is a net. Okay? These guys are basically browbeating people and telling them that they're selfish because they're doing church for themselves. The purpose of the church is to gather and to hear God's word and to build up the body of Christ. When the church gathers, it is for the church. It's the building up of the body of Christ. If it weren't, then these spiritual gifts that God gave us through the Holy Spirit wouldn't make any sense at all. This is a fundamental Law, and I would even go so far as to say a direct contradiction of God's word to the point that borders on heresy. To say that the church, when it meets, is wrong when it meets because it's meeting for itself. Listen again. So how do we recover that, that seeker movement? At Flamingo, we used a phrase, I want to teach it to you, and feel free to teach it to your folks. Repeat this with me. Listen to it once. Church is so not about me. Would you say that? Church is so not about me. Now, so- now, in light of what we just read in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, no, when we get together, the purpose of church is to feed on God's word and the building up of the body of Christ. When the church gathers, it is for the building up of the body. Say it again. Church is so not about me. Now, I want you to turn to somebody sitting near you, poke them and say... Church is so not about you. Tell them. Now, once you raise that as a value in the church, you've done a phenomenal thing. No, you haven't. If you say that is a value in your church, you're contradicting the clear teaching of the word of God. You see, we believe at Flamingo Road that the people that God is most interested in on Sunday morning are the ones that are driving up and down this street and don't even know we're here. Now listen, that's false piety, and I want to point something out to you. Listen, excuse me. Listen to what he said. The people that God is most interested in. You see, we believe at Flamingo Road that the people that God is most interested in on Sunday morning are the ones that are driving up and down this street and don't even know we're here. Really, I thought that God loves them so much that He died for their sins too. It's not that God cares for them the most; He cares for us all and loves us all i nowhere see in the scriptures that it says that god cares more for the lost than he does for his own adopted children who trust in him and have received the forgiveness of sins and have faith in him and faith in christ you see how this is all 180 degrees backwards 
It's not about me. And it's not about you. So when- See, it sounds so humble. It sounds so pious. And it's absolutely wrong. When somebody comes to me and says, Dan, I really don't like the music. I say to them, I need to apologize to you. I somehow have given you the impression that church is for you. The Bible does that. And I don't know what I have done to give you that impression. But, but I really want you to hear, it's not. And, and I know the music's a stretch for you. It's a stretch for me. But when- Doesn't it sound like personal sacrifice on his part? But it's contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. We're not here for the already convinced. We're here for the yet-to-know-Christ crowd. You can't do church for non-believers because they're not part of the body of Christ. They're not part of the church. By definition, you can't do church for them. And, and, and we've got to fish with the bait that they understand. No, you need to cast the net of the gospel. Nowhere in the scriptures are we taught to use bait fishing. We're called to proclaim Christ and him crucified. That's net fishing, different paradigm altogether. So I hope that you can buy in to purpose over preference. Do you see? <laughs> did you hear that? Well, see, listen, that's just your preference, but we have, we are a purpose driven church and that whole doing church for you, that's a preference. No, that's what God instructs us to do, what the Holy Spirit tells us to do. This isn't a matter of personal preference. And see, that's how they, that this is all part of their rhetoric. That all of these methods, it's just a matter of preference. No, it's not. It's about following what God's word says. You can't do church for the unchurched. There's no such thing. Hear that phrase? Choose purpose over preference. Well, according to scripture, the purpose of church is the building up of the church. The building up of the body of Christ. We practice our gifts in church to build up the body of Christ. That's the purpose laid out in Scripture. This purpose that you guys have imposed contradicts the purpose laid out in Scripture. Now, for a hundred years, the American church has said, no, it's all about us, all about us. Notice how for a hundred years, the church has been selfish, selfish, selfish. No, for the past two millennia, the church has been doing what it's supposed to do having shepherds who feed God's sheep and people practicing their gifts as God has given them for the building up of the church. There's a 2,000-year unbroken history of this, and the Johnny-come-lately seeker-driven guys, they are tooling, they are tooling, retooling things that should not be retooled. They're rethinking things that have no business being rethunk because their rethinking is contradicting the word of God. No, it's not. It's really not about what I prefer, what I'm comfortable with, or what I want. Yeah, notice it's about personal preference and comfort. Oh, you're just, yeah, huh? No, this is about obeying God's word. And once a church crosses that barrier, God can do amazing things in the church. Yeah, see, once you make your church for non-believers, in other words, fulfill the prophecy in, in by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, scratch itching ears... Oh, you'll build a big church, and they'll think that it's from God, but it's not because it's contradicting what God's Word teaches. Okay, next soundbite's really, really short. 
Um, listen to this. There's a seeker movement going on in the world. Man, when you get in it, God blesses. So there's a seeker movement going on in the world. That's the that's another movement. Seeker movement. And when you get in it, God's blessing it. Okay. Now, remember at the beginning, he said, I'm not going to tell you the changes that you need to make in your church. They may be different than whatever. Notice he's making a case for you have to go with small groups. You have to have contemporary music. And you have to get into a seeker mode because that those are the things that God's blessing. Listen again. Listen more. Here's the next one. The fourth movement of God in the world today, this is interesting to me, is the one that Billy Graham says is the biggest movement of God in the world today. At Amsterdam 2000, he proclaimed that this movement is the biggest movement of God in the world today. It is the purpose-driven church movement. Okay, so another movement of God. The big movement of God is the purpose-driven church movement. It's see, these are the big movements, and when you get join into them, God's going to bless you with with explosive growth. Now, here's the next one. If there's a movement of God in the world today called Cell Church, and if there's another river of what God is doing in the world called contemporary worship, and if there's a third river of what God is doing called the Seeker Movement. And a fourth river of what God is doing called purpose-driven. Here's the question. Where do we want to live? Where they come together. We've got to get in on it. Now, what is this conference about? It's about getting in on what God is doing. So there's the, him selling. In the introduction, this is about getting in on what God is doing. And it's all just him saying that this is what God is doing. Yet... I have brought up very valid biblical concerns that question whether or not God is involved in any of this stuff because it's contradicting the clear teaching of the word of God. Now, I want you to hear this one more time, this claim of his. And let me say this clearly. I do not believe you need to make the same changes Flamingo Road has made. Did, did you hear that? The changes that your church needs to make will not be the same changes Flamingo Road has made. Yet he's telling you that you have to get, you know, you need to join in to one of these four things and they're all the same thing. Now, I'm going to uh, play one more soundbite for you that I think just shows the complete lie that he just told. We're not going to tell you, uh, you know, the things you need to do in your church because it might be different for your church. And I want you to hear this soundbite and see if this doesn't completely contradict what he said. I think the most controversial part of transition is defining your vision. And this is the hardest part. Can I be that honest? Once you defined vision, figuring out how to do it's not too bad. But defining it is just tough. Uh, there's a verse in Proverbs that's another life verse for me. I'm really big on life verses. Having a handful of verses, a dozen, maybe two dozen verses that you just try to live out in your life that just represent who you are. And this is one of those verses for me. Would you read this verse out loud with me? It says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Now, Henry Blackaby has taught me more about this idea than anyone else. How many of you have done Blackaby study experiencing God? Killer stuff. Killer, killer stuff. You ought to do it every three or four years just to just to be reminded. Tell me the principle behind Blackaby's study. Those of you that have done it, what is it? 
Yeah, see what God's doing in the world and joining. Okay, now notice, this isn't a later segment in the conference. This is actually segment number three in the conference. And he's talking about defining vision. And now he's talking about Blackaby and saying, find what God is doing in the world and join him. Find what God is doing in the world and join him. And what are the four things that God's doing in the world? Sell church, contemporary music, seeker-driven, purpose-driven. Find what God's doing in the world and join him. Now listen carefully. And join you. Now here's what we do in our churches. We say, hey God, I've got a great plan for my church. Will you come down here and bless my plan? No. God has never done that. God will never do that. God stands instead way over here and says, well, I'm already blessing these things. Why don't you join me in what I'm already blessing? Oh, Lord, you don't understand. My plan's original. My plan's unique. My plan's mine. Won't you come bless my plan? Here's a key, key truth. It took me 20 years to grab this. God never joins us. Never. He invites us to join him. And that's why that first thing we talked about today of four major movements God's doing in the world. If if he's already doing four things, why wouldn't we join him? And what he's already doing. So in other words, you don't have to do any, you don't have to do the same things we did. You can do anything. You you can make different changes. As long as you do one of these four, just, you know, basically become seeker driven, purpose driven, uh, adopt contemporary music and sell church. God will only bless you if you do those things. Cause that's what he's already doing. You see the manipulation here, the spiritual pietistic sounding manipulation. You leave this, you are basically told that God will not bless your church, and church uh, blessing equals growth. God will not bless your church, and you will not experience growth unless you join the seeker-driven movement, adopt contemporary music, go seeker-driven and purpose-driven. Anything else? No way. God will say, no way. You're not paying attention. I'm blessing those things. Come join me in that. Does anyone have a problem with this? I know I do. Not because about of personal preference, but because God's word completely contradicts this. And these claims and these assertions regarding what that you have to join God in what he's blessing, they're not found in the Bible They are nothing but unsubstantiated assertions on the part of what God is, you know, on what God is doing and what he expects of you, but they're not found in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures that God has given us contradict many of the things that we're hearing here. Many of them, if not all. And that's just the tip of the iceberg on what I'm going to be doing here as I deconstruct Church Transitions, Inc.'s hijacking of churches. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard thus far, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there, Pirate Christian. Right back. When we come back, sermon review. Good one from Stephen Furtick. I kid you not, it's a good one. We'll be right back. 
Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. All right, it's time for installment number two on our um, in our segment that we're doing, Deconstructing uh, Church Transitions Strategy and Tactics for Hijacking Churches. And uh, today's installment, we have sound bites uh, from uh, the uh, the segment entitled Preparing for Vision. Preparing for Vision. And so the idea here is, is that uh, if you're if you're going to transition your church from being a traditional church to being a purpose driven church, you have to prepare to receive God's vision for um, uh, for what He wants to do in your church. Now we we unpacked all the subjectivity and uh, Bible twisting in the introduction to uh, <clears throat> this particular uh, seminar. And keep in mind, for many years, and I think it's still the case, Church Transitions Inc really is the official uh, arm of the purpose-driven movement, Saddleback, uh, you know, for giving seminars on how to instruct pastors to make the big change, if you would, to take the plunge into purpose-drivenism and seeker-drivenism. And uh, so, yeah, listen to the previous installments. This all works together. So in this uh, segment, it, we're going to learn about how to prepare to receive God's vision because um, that's the idea, is that the leader now, if he can properly prepare then he will hear from God and God will tell him how he wants to bless their church and what they need to do in order to get that blessing, the blessing being bigger numbers. And uh, and so listen carefully. Let's uh, do the analysis here. We're going to compare what we're hearing in the name of God to the word of God. Here's Dan Sutherland from Church Transitions. There's a verse that I want us to read. It's 1 Corinthians 2.9. It is my life verse. In fact, it's the verse God gave me that kind of led me here to Flamingo Road. And then he gave it to me again to lead me into what I'm doing today. Every time he puts this verse in my heart, I get a little scared about what's next. But it's a great verse. Now, all of you all should be going, oh, great. It's a verse. Yeah, that means he's going to rip it out of context. Now, verses ripped out of context it's still possible to actually get the gist of what it is that that, that verse is saying and, and what it is that that verse means, uh, but you have to be real careful. So uh, what are our three rules of biblical interpretation when somebody's ripping verses out of context? Well, the three rules for identifying what the verse actually means are context, context, context. Put the verse back into context. Read the verses ahead. Read the verses behind to see what it is that where this sentence that's been taken out of context fits into the bigger context of what's in that passage. And you'll know what it is that con- that the uh, that the Holy Spirit actually communicated through that. Now, already we're off to a bad start because Sutherland here is saying that God puts this thing into his heart. It's his life quote verse, and listen carefully to how he uses it. I want you to read it out loud with me. You guys can read it in Spanish. That'd be cool. And uh, Espanol es lingua de cielo. See? That's verdad. I told them that Spanish is the language of heaven. And we're all going to have to learn it between now and then. It's just so much better an emotional, expressive language. It really is. But we'll read it in English up there. You ready? Read it with me. The Bible says, No eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, before you just run through that verse, look at it with me. That verse says God wants to do something bigger in your church than you've ever seen. No eye has seen. So according to Dan Sutherland, that verse, 1 Corinthians 2.9, means that God wants to do something bigger in your church than you can ever imagine. All right, let's test it. Is that 
what 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 teaches. Well, in order to do this, we're going to apply our three rules. Context, context, context. Grab your Bibles if you have them. I will be reading from the English Sanctified Version here on my computer uh, Bible. We read 1 Corinthians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our, uh, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, and even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except for the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by us, uh, uh, given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, in, in, ter- interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Okay? So does verse 9 mean what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, mean that you have no idea how much God wants to bless your church. You just have no idea what he wants to do with your church. Well, no, actually, that's not what the text is saying at all. He just read that into it. But let's see, you didn't notice how he brought credibility to his interpretation by saying that God is the one who laid this on his heart. This First Corinthians two nine does not talk about your church. Let's consult a good commentary and see what a good commentary has to say about verse nine. We will be consulting Lenski's commentary. I know many of you do not have it. It is one of my favorites. And here is what Lenski has to say about this particular passage. Let's see if he sees that this is for the church. You know, for God specifically having blessings for your individual church. And that's what really this passage is about. Says Lenski, bearing these facts in mind, we should have no difficulty in this case understanding what Paul wrote. Paul uses Isaiah 64.4 and Isaiah 65.17 for the second line. When he uses the expressions from these two passages, Paul's evident object is to show the mystery character of the wisdom which he and others are preaching. The expression he thus desires are especially three. The one regarding the eye that does not see, the one regarding the ear that does not hear, and then one regarding the heart that does not even uh, conceive the thought. The psychological arrangement and progression 
eye, ear, heart is Paul's own. Since he found no single Old Testament passage that contained these three, uh, these, these three, he combines two such passages freely and thus secures the three. The object which is thus not perceived by the eye, ear, and heart, Paul restates from Isaiah 64.4 by using the prophet's thought quite exactly. No heathen people ever conceived a God who would actually take care of those who place their reliance on him. The idea that this God of Israel could be such a God never entered their minds. In other words, the mystery that Paul is talking about, the thing that no eye has seen, no ear has has conceived, all that kind of stuff, it's referring to Christ and the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, not God wanting to grow your church. In fact, I think Dan Sutherland would be hard-pressed to find a single scholar that says that 1 Corinthians 2.9, that the thing that you haven't conceived is how much God wants to bless your church. It's not in the text. That's not what Paul was trying to say. Dan here is twisting God's word. That verse says God wants to do something bigger at your church than your church has ever heard of. No ear has heard. That's pretty big. That verse says God wants to do something bigger in our lives and in our churches and in our community and in our country than we can even dream up. No, it doesn't. He's actually lying. No mind has conceived. I don't know about you, but I can dream up quite a bit. God's vision is a big deal. And when a church really gets in on what God is doing, an amazing thing happens. If a church gets in on what God is doing. So this is all about getting in on what God is doing. You follow these steps laid out by Dan Sutherland and you're going to get in on what God is doing. And you can't even imagine what he's going to do to your church. The text doesn't teach that. How do we get in on that? I would propose that you can't do something that big without doing big preparation first. Notice the confusion of long gospel. So here he's holding out this big carrot. See, God wants to do big things in your church. You haven't even imagined it yet. You got to get in on that vision. But oh, whoa, whoa, wait. First, you got to jump through these hoops in order to show God that you're serious. So that you're prepared to receive the vision that you haven't even imagined. You see what's going on here? Now, here's uh, Dan's definition of vision. Listen carefully. Here's a definition of vision. Vision is a picture of what God wants to do. That's all it is. It's a picture of what God wants to do. So vision, if you prepare yourself... You follow these steps and you prepare yourself. You're going to receive a picture from God of what God wants to do. And you can't even imagine how good it is right now. Oh, oh, oh it's just a ama- No eye has seen, no ear has heard, or even no mind has imagined uh, how big the things are that God wants to do in your life. Complete twisting of 1 Corinthians 2.9. We continue. So how do you prepare for this vision? What do you have got to do? Well, let's find out. Let's the next uh, next soundbite. Here we go. Now, if you and I are going to get in on what God is doing, it starts by collecting information. And there are two things to me that you ought to study. First, the unchurched people in your community. All right. So step one, according to Dan, is that if you want to get on, get in on what God is doing and you want to see and you want to get a picture of what it is that God wants to do with your church, the first thing you need to do is you must collect information. 
You're going, huh? Well, funny enough, this is supposedly based upon Nehemiah chapter 1. Because Nehemiah chapter 1, unbeknownst to anybody in church history until this time, is actually laying out a blueprint for what the things you need to do in order to receive the vision that God wants for your church that you can't even imagine what it is. And, uh, and, and if you follow the steps laid out in Nehemiah chapter 1, you are going to then be able to hear from God. So listen carefully. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of uh, Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they will say, <laughs> hang on a second, you're going, wait a second. Well, see, don't, didn't you see it? Verse 2, it says that Nehemiah asked these guys from Jerusalem concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah chapter 1, apparently, verse 2, teaches us the first hidden step that you need to do in order to prepare to receive this vision. And that is, is that you have to get information. Because see, Nehemiah got information by asking a question. So that means in, or, if, in order for you to prepare to hear for, uh, to receive God's vision for your church, Nehemiah 1, 2 supposedly teaches that you have to collect information, get data, specifically from the unchurched as well as churches that are reaching unchurched people. See, that's what Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2 has been teaching us all along, and nobody saw this until these purpose-driven guys came around. Next quote. All right. Now, if you want to have 100 people in your church from now to eternity, just keep holding hands with the 100 whiners you've already got. It'll do it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but don't do it and claim that you're trying to build a church for God. All right. So those of you who want to have a hundred whiners in your church, you know, having a hundred people in your church, that's not good. But don't say that you're building a church for God if you're just going to continue having a hundred whiners. Notice the slap against small churches. Okay. We continue. We do have it. In every state in America today, there are incredible models of churches reaching other people for Christ in every country in the world with the exception of a handful and that's changing there are models of great churches now listen we usually won't study other pastors and other churches why is that help me why do we not want to study Daryl jump in okay now this, this by the way step part of step number one you collect data you study the unchurched and now you study the churches that are reaching the unchurched listen to this carefully we're jealous as one. I mean, we'd hate to admit that they've got something we don't have. We're jealous. What else? I'm sorry? We think we know it all. We've got a little pride going there. There it is. They, they have a different theology. And somehow we think that if their theology is wrong, then their methodology is wrong. Everybody look right here. This is important. Okay, now listen carefully. So in order to, to prepare to receive God's vision... Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 2 using purpose driven spectacles teaches us that we have to collect data and that where do we collect data from the unchurched and from churches that are reaching the unchurched regardless of their theological persuasion we continue you get your theology here between you and God in the word 
get your theology here. You don't get theology from another church. But you get methodology here. That's not a conflict. You don't have enough time to make all the mistakes yourself. We don't have enough time to figure it out ourselves. So apparently you get your theology from the Bible, but you get your methodology from what other people are doing. No, I think you should get both from the scriptures. Now, let's listen to this next soundbite. I grew up on the farm. Maybe that helps me here. When my grandmother raised a crop, she didn't have the luxury of not keeping up with what everybody else was doing that was working. If the neighbor farm next door had a bigger crop that year, she didn't say to herself, I'm not going to ask them what they're doing. They cheated. I'm not going to ask them what they're doing. Their theology of growing corn is not right. She went over and knocked on the door and said, what did you do different? Did you plant earlier? Did you use a different fertilizer? Did you plant? What did you do, man? I got to know why. Because her crop depended on it. I think the one we love most said, you will know them by their fruit. Did he notice this? You'll know them by their fruit. Apparently, knowing them by their fruit means as to whether or not they're growing their church. Okay, keep this in mind. Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. And Islam itself is the fastest growing religion in Great Britain. How many seeker-driven, purpose-driven mosques are there? I think the one we love most said, you will know them by their fruit. Did he say that? Funny, he didn't say, you'll know them by their theology. So apparently the fruit is how much people are, how many people are being brought in. The only measure for success and God's blessing is that a church is growing. And notice the Bible twist there. They'll know them by their fruit. No, Jesus was talking about their perverted life and their false doctrine. Talking about false teachers. Hang on a second here. This requires me to open up my Bible. Do a little word study here. Hang on a second here. Didn't have this one on deck, but that's all right. I'm I'm capable of looking it up in using my computerized Bible. Here it is. Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Recognize who? Who's the them in verse 20? False teachers, false prophets. The one who twists God's word and makes it say things that it doesn't say is the false teacher and the false prophet. In other words, Matthew seven twenty, which he quotes here, oddly enough, warns us about Dan Sutherland who's twisting God's word here and twisting this passage to basically say, you're going to know them by their fruit. Know what? That God's blessing them because look how many people are coming to their church. That's not what that passage teaches at all. Dan here is a wolf. The fastest growing religion in the United Kingdom today is Islam. Now, I, I find it funny that he's making this point. 
the fastest growing religion in, in the United Kingdom is Islam. Does that mean that God's blessing them, Dan? At its current rate of growth, the UK will be an Islamic nation in another generation. Funny enough, if you apply what he said to that factoid, you would have to conclude that God is blessing Islam. Apparently, God gave Islam a vision. Go and convert the world at, a so- at the end of a sword. we got to continue. Yeah, sometimes you got to fast. Number four step is you got to pray. It's praying. Okay, it's- let me fill you in on what's going on here. Um, so, okay, so in order to prepare to receive the vision, you first have to collect information. Secondly, you have to, uh, you have to have a holy discontent with the status quo. And that apparently comes, uh, from Nehemiah chapter one, verse four, where it says Nehemiah, when he said he heard these things, he sat down and wept. See, that means he had a holy discontent for the status quo. Um, then you need to fast. And then Nehemiah chapter four, verse uh, one, verse four, part B says, for some days I mourned and fasted. See, that's showing us what we need to do in order to prepare to receive God's vision. Actually, it's not. And then uh, and then you have to pray. That's Nehemiah chapter one, verses five through six. And then you have to wait. OK, um, and, and see, once you've done all of these things, then you will be ready to receive. You will have jumped through the hoops and shown God that you're serious that you want to receive from him the vision of what he wants to do so you can get in on it. Listen carefully. This is the flip side of the coin from fasting. If you don't add extra prayer in when you fast, you're not fasting, you're just slim fasting. And slim fasting doesn't work. When you go back to eating, you put it all back on. That's the reality. So prayer is a big part. The Bible tells us Nehemiah fasted for days, but he prayed for months. For months. There's a lot of prayer going on here. I'd like you to notice the all law base. See, he's held the carrot in front of you. God wants to give you this vision, but he's not going to do it unless you go through these steps first and show God how serious you are. Law, 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 law. Not none of this is actually is not none of this is explicitly taught in Scripture anywhere. He's just eisegeting Nehemiah chapter one. Do this. I'd like you to answer this question for me. Rate yourself from one to a hundred. Listen to this very carefully. The conclusion to this is breathtakingly bad. On how much you're praying for the vision and the future of your church. Not the present, not the problems now. How much are you praying for the vision and the future of your church? If you're so busy with the present that you're not doing that at all, then that's one. If it's keeping you up late at night and staying on your mind all through the day, that's a hundred. Rate yourself. If you're embarrassed by your number, add 50 to it. Write a number down, would you? I want everybody here to write a number down. If you don't like your number, write it in code. Your neighbor doesn't have to see it. Write a number down. Everybody got a number? Now, would you do this? Add a percentage sign after your number. A percentage sign. And here's the wild statement. That's the maximum percent of what God wants to do you're ever going to see. If I pray at a 25% level, then God can only do 25% of what he wants to do in my life and my church. Let me play that again. Listen carefully. If I pray at a 25% level, then God can only do 25% of what he wants to do in my life and my church. That is a lie from the pit of hell absolutely nowhere in the scripture is this taught 
God can only give you 25% of what he wants to give you if you only are giving him 25% in your prayer. Let me play it again. If I pray at a, if I pray at a 25% level, then God can only do 25% of what he wants to do in my life and my church. If I pray at a 50% level, I only see half. Doesn't your Bible say the same way mine does? If my people call by my name, humble themselves and pray, then will I hear from heaven. Then do I heal their land. So, pastors, if you're not praying enough to hear God's vision, you know, if you're only praying, you know, 25% of, you know, what you're supposed to hear, yeah, God can only give you 25% of the vision that he has for you. I mean, I'm sorry, you're just not measuring up. You know, and if, and if you improve and get to 50%, well, then, you know, God can only give you 50% of the vision that he really truly has for you. I mean, here he has this great, grand vision for your church, but you're just not doing enough. If my people who will call on my name and pray, then I will heal their land. See, this is there's no gospel here at all. And these are patent satanic lies that you are hearing. This is how churches are hijacked. They are told lies about God, told lies about what they have to do to hear from God. In order to receive the vision. This is all built off of a nasty, nasty set of heresies. We continue. Here's another one. You know, the story is told about a guy who goes to heaven and uh, he meets St. Peter at the gate. Now, you do know that all those stories that start like that are made up. right? Now, I'm going to point something out to you. He's saying that this is made up, but here's the thing. He's going to tell you a made-up story that isn't in the Bible and then tell you a spiritual truth from it, as if it is in the Bible. Listen carefully. Right? It's hard to get a report back from these people. They're all made up. Guy goes to heaven, meets St. Peter at the gate. St. Peter takes him on a tour down a long, narrow hallway. And he opens one of the rooms and he says, look in here. And when they go inside, there are gifts everywhere, everywhere. I mean, wrapped in colorful paper and with great bows and little gifts and big gifts, just, just a warehouse full of gifts. And the guy gets excited and he says, is this my reward? And Peter says, no, this is all the stuff your father wanted to give you while you were on earth and you never asked for it. This is satanic. Uh, that's the only word I can use for it. This is a law-based, pietistic, Bible-twisting, hijacking seminar to take over Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches and turn them into, quote, churches for the unchurched, which isn't even biblically possible. Last one. Vision is given to those who wait for it. There you go. You got it. See, now you got to wait for it. So vision is given to those who see that's the thing. If you're not doing enough, you're not going get, to get God's vision. You have to prepare to receive it. You've got to first collect information. You have to become wholly disgruntled with the status quo. You have to fast. You have to pray. And then you have to wait. And if you don't, then you're, you haven't done the steps necessary to receive the vision. And if you're not praying fervently enough and fasting enough, you're only given 25% to your fasting and praying. Well, then sorry, you know, 
God wants to give you the the grand vision that he has for your church, but you just weren't obedient enough. You just didn't give him enough, so he can't give you anything. This is not biblical Christianity. This is something completely different. We're up on our second break. When we come back, it'll be sermon review time. And we're going to be reviewing a sermon from a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church using uh, the hit NBC television show, Biggest Loser. So you don't want to lose, you don't want to miss that. I think it'd be a nice bow on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, these Druckerite... Uh, uh, vision casting CEO leader, so-called pastors. They're not. Um, th- there's no such thing as a valid criticism or a godly critic. And, uh, you know, the, and what does this come back to? Well, this comes back to what we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith from the Church Transition Seminar, uh, put on by Dan Sutherland, who, who, by the way, was really kind of the official purpose-driven church transition guy he you know he, their seminar was the thing that saddleback would point to uh, as far as training pastors to basically change their church from being a place where uh, god's sheep were being fed with god's word to basically entertaining goats and the whole justification for this it, the steps go something along this line the pastor uh, first is informed that god is sitting up in heaven with his arms crossed it's a little bit of a characterization, and he wants to give a vision for your, you know, for your specific congregation. He's got a vision for it of what he wants to do for you, and, and that includes major growth and things like that. But your pastor first has to show God how serious he is uh, to receive that vision from God. I mean, so this involves lots of prayer and fasting and preparation to show God how, you know, that he's serious about receiving from God this vision that God wants to give him. But again, God's standing up in heaven, basically waiting for the pastor to show how committed he is to this vision that God wants to give him and by, de- by demonst- demonstrating it by jumping through these hoops. And then what happens is, is that once the pastor has prepared himself, God will release the vision and give him the vision for what he wants that, you know, for his goal for this individual congregation. And what will happen is, is that then that pastor is then to take that vision that he's received directly from God, that new thing that God wants to do in that congregation, and he's to cast the vision uh, to the people in the congregation in order to uh, get people behind the vision. Now, here's the thing, okay? Is that this vision is not written in the Bible? You can't find it there. It's a it's direct revelation from God to the pastor who's shown himself to be worthy to receive this vision. And then, of course, if you criticize what that pastor is doing or the direction that he's taking that congregation, 
you are not criticizing the pastor. You are actually criticizing God himself because God is the one who gave the pastor the vision for where the direction they're going to go. Now, interestingly enough, um, uh, Church Transition Inc. has an entire section in their seminar on how to hijack a church uh, about how to deal with opposition. And here is Dan Sutherland explaining how all of this works. I'll be playing this and commenting along the way. But keep in mind, we're going to go a little bit long in this segment so that you can get the gist of all of this. Page 11. We're going to talk about dealing with opposition. Here's my presupposition for this step. If anybody in the Bible should have had no opposition, it's Nehemiah. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. Seeker-driven CEO Druckerites always go to Nehemiah and engage in an allegorical interpretation of the book of Nehemiah to basically, uh, you know, this is their foundation for, quote, dealing with opposition. Okay, just I just want to make you aware of that. Ed Young, by the way, did that at C3. If I have time, I'll play a segment of that for you. Think about it. He's rebuilding a wall that's going to make Jerusalem safe. It's going to enable them to rebuild their temple. It's going to restore the reputation of the country, the pride of the city, the glory of God. Everybody is going to be for this, right? Wrong. Wrong. There is always opposition. So what we want to give you in this step is... Okay, again, I have to ask a question. He's saying there's always opposition. The question that has to be answered is opposition to what? Answer, opposition to the direct revelation from God to the pastor who's shown himself to be worthy and that God has given him the vision that he has casted for the congregation in the direction that they're the new direction that they're going to head. Opposition to the vision from God, which, by the way, is not found in the scriptures. You just have to believe the pastor that he got this directly from God. Two main principles for dealing with opposition and five examples from the life of Nehemiah about how to do each one. Okay? Okay, notice the allegorical use of the life of Nehemiah. Okay. Because, of course, just like Nehemiah had a vision, you know, from God to rebuild the wall and a commission to rebuild the wall... This, you, you know, your vision-casting pastor, he's got a direct revelation from God about the new thing he wants to do in the church. Now, listen carefully to these, uh, these, uh, this opposition stuff. That's where we're headed. Here's the first idea. First of all, expect opposition. You need to be ready for opposition. You need to be um, expecting that it's going to happen and that it's going to come. It's not... Of all of the steps that you will go through, Mm -hmm. this is one you will not avoid, I promise you. You will not avoid it. So you need to expect... So you've got a direct revelation from God, and therefore you must expect opposition. But not any of it's valid. None of it is actually godly. None of it is actually um, valid. There's no such thing as a valid critic. See, just by the fact that you've gotten the criticism, that shows you're on the right track and that God has given you this vision. There's no way to penetrate this impenetrable circle of thought. Um, It's amazing to me how we we get into this thing of not expecting things to happen. All of a sudden, it's Easter, and we have to put on an Easter program in our church. and, and, And someone once said to me, after I'd failed to plan for Easter, they said to me, Well, did you not know that Easter was coming? That's a pretty good question. Yeah. 
So my question to you is, do you not know that opposition is going to come? So plan on how you deal with it. So plan on how you deal with it. Expect it. you got a vision from God, so expect opposition to the vision. Now, there are some of the aspects of opposition that you're going to have to face. In fact, there are five of them, five kinds of opposition. Nehemiah dealt with five coming your way. First, expect apathy. Expect apathy. One of the first responses when you lead change is some people are just not going to care. Now, it's not that they don't care about the change. It's that they don't care about the reason for the change. When you start saying things like, we want to do church for the unchurched. We want to do church for the unchurched. By the way, not biblical. It's not even remotely biblical. You can't do church for the unchurched because the unchurched are not part of the church, the ecclesia, those who are called out. They are unbelievers. We're going to, I mean, that, see, this, the, the language hides the, the problem. You can't do church for pagans. If we stopped calling them unchurched, you'd see it for what it is. We're going to, I've got a vision from God and, and the vision from God I prepared for because I prayed and fasted for 50 days and on my hands and knees. I got, in fact, I, I, my knees have calluses on it. And I, at the end of showing God how serious I was to receive this vision, he finally gave me this vision and he told me, Chris, I want you to do church for pagans. I want you to do church for unbelievers. You see, when you put it in that terminology, you realize on its face, this isn't biblical. We want to go after seekers. We want to position this. There's no one who seeks God. No, not one. Read Romans 3. Church to reach lost people. Some people aren't interested in that. Mm-hmm. That's because it's not biblical the way you're doing it. You don't change the feeding of God's sheep, the care and feeding of God's sheep into entertaining goats. They're more interested in their comfort than they are in reaching lost folks. So there you go. See, it, see, there's only one reason why they would be opposed to the vision that God has given you because it's all about their comfort. Complete straw man argument. It's not true. Next soundbite. Second thing to expect. Expect anger. It's going to happen. There are some people that are going to be angry, and, they, and, and sometimes they don't even know why they're angry. They just know that they're angry because they are finding some things that are happening in their church that are different. And, and, and it's not necessarily that they disagree with those things, but they're just mad about change. Now, let me give you an instance. If you have older members in your congregation, you may now be the fifth pastor that they've lived through. Okay, listen carefully. And and you may be the fifth guy that came in with a brand new idea and a brand new concept. You may also be the fifth guy who has screwed up the church. And you may be the person now that you're saying, this is a new plan, it's a new revelation. It's a what? It's a what? Hang on a second. Listen again. And you may be the person now that you're saying this is a new plan. It's a new revelation. There it is. So this whole vision casting thing, it's a new direct revelation from God. Folks, that's what's at the heart of this thing. And if you criticize their vision, you're criticizing God himself. This is a direct revelation from God to the one receiving the vision, the CEO, Druckerite pastor. And they're just angry at the changes, uh, but they're angry at the new revelation from God. Serious folks, 
We're dealing with a false vision and a false revelation. This isn't from God. You need to be sensitive to that. There are going to be people that are going to be angry with you because of what they've lived through in the past. Understand it and recognize the anger is not geared toward you. It's geared toward the change. Okay, next quote. Thirdly, ridicule. There will be other churches. There will be other pastors. There will be people who say to you, you think that you're going to come in here and tell us something new? I've had, pe- I've had deacons that have said to me in past churches. You're going to come here and tell us something new? Again, what do these go- the presupposition is that their vision is a direct new revelation from God. We, we've outlived a lot, a, a lot, a, a pastors a lot longer than you, and we'll outlive you too. Mm. And the, the and and the ridicule that comes is is directly pointed at what you're trying to do. Okay. Next soundbite. Expect apathy, anger, ridicule. How about criticism? Let's put that up there. Expect criticism. Okay, now keep in mind, in their way of thinking, there is no valid godly critic because they received a direct revelation, a new revelation, a direct vision from God. It can't, The vision and the revelation cannot be criticized. It cannot be challenged or any of that. There's no such thing as a valid or godly critic. By the way, this is very cult-like, C-U-L-T. It doesn't matter if you're building a wall that's going to make the city safe. You're going to be criticized. It doesn't matter if you're laying down your life on a cross for the sins of all mankind. Uh, notice the, oh, see, you're, you're in league with like Nehemiah and Jesus on this. You are criticized. It doesn't matter that you're trying to do a noble thing, a build a church that is going to reach lost people. There's some criticism. There just is. Look what they said to Nehemiah. They basically said, Nehemiah, this won't last If even a silly little fox jumps on your wall, it'll come tumbling down. This is a fad. This is momentary. It's not going to pass. It'll pass. How about it's not biblical and it completely contradicts God's word? Why would God give a new revelation and a new vision that contradicts what his word tells us to do? To preach the word in season and out of season. To use the gifts given by the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ. You can't do church for pagans. It's just not going to last. You're going to have. Keep in mind, you didn't. That nowhere in church history does doing church for pagans come about until the end of the 20th century. This is a new thing, but it's not from God. Some criticism along the way. The last one's kind of interesting too. You got to expect a fight. Expect a fight. Notice we did not say pick a fight. No. No, we didn't. But we didn't say run from the fight right. either. You know, what happened for Nehemiah was his enemies gathered up against him, both those outside the camp and those within, and they started to raise a rebellion, a fight, a takeover. A fight. Uh, and, and you're going to have some of those. Now, I hope it's not a fist fight, but there's a power struggle coming. It just is. If you lead enough change, there's a power struggle coming. One of the fights we had here at Flamingo, we now refer to as the shooting. By the way, I, I have a master's degree in business administration from Pepperdine University. The emphasis of my master's degree is leadership and organizational change. What he just said is not true. There are, in fact, leading change, if you do it right, 
there doesn't need to even be a fight at all. Doesn't have to be a fight at all. What he just said is not true. Out at the OK Corral, looking back at it, that's our fond memory of it. And I'll tell you the story quickly. Uh, it was a deacons meeting years ago when the deacons were still board members at Flamingo. They were still policymakers rather than servants as they are today. Listen, did you hear that? Back in the day when the deacons were uh, board members and policymakers instead of servants, one of the big important things about the Druckerite thing is that they remove all accountability, all of it. Deacons have no power whatsoever to say no. They become servants. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, oh, yeah, we we have deacons that are servants, but they have no ability to hold the pastor accountable or to complain. And, uh, yeah. Rather than caregivers. Um and we were beginning to make changes, and some things had been made, and some things were still in process. And before we started the deacons meeting that night, a man that I thought was my best friend in the church. Hear that. A man that I had had chicken wings with the night before, and he had not brought any of this up. A man whose daughter had been at my house that afternoon playing with my kids. Before the meeting started looked at me across the room and said, Dan, before we start tonight, I want to make a motion. Can we still make motions in deacon's meeting? And I said, absolutely. We're, uh, we're still technically the group in charge of the church. What do you want to do? And he said, I want to make a motion that we go back to doing church the way we did it before you came. And then he went on to explain it. He said, okay, I listen to the deacon's criticism. I don't think you're preaching the way you ought to. That's right, because you've gone from preaching the Bible to self-help, self-tip kind of stuff. I don't think you care about the people that are leaving the church. And That's I, right. And the, the changes drove out all of the mature believers. Quote, and the music we're doing is crap. That's right, because all this is a 7-Eleven song singing about ourself. Ooh, ooh, I... I love the way I love me, loving Jesus. Ooh. I make a motion we go back to doing church the way we used to do it. And the minute he said it, the two men sitting on either side of him said, I second the motion. Think there was a chance they had planned this ahead? Now listen, the man had not bothered to be biblical. I was with him the night before for two hours. But keep in mind, Dan Sutherland had received from God a direct revelation, a new vision for the direction that God wants to take the church. And therefore, no criticism would have been tolerated because Dan himself is the one who received the vision from God. He didn't talk to me one-on-one -on -one like Matthew 18 says. Yeah, but the funny thing is, is you were completely disobeying like Second Timothy chapter 4. He didn't bother to be biblical. He planned an ambush. It's flat out the case. He thought he could pull off a power play in the deacon's meeting. So I sat in silence for about 30 seconds, maybe the longest period of my life that I've ever been silent. And I said, uh, thank you for the motion. You have a right to make it. You've appealed to uh, Robert's Rules of Order, the parliamentary guideline we follow here by making that motion, and we'll stay with it. But I'm going to take a point of privilege. I'm going to speak to your motion before we vote on it. Now, again, this was back when we used Robert's Rules of Order. Are you all familiar with that? 
little parliamentary book that says how to do stuff. If you're going to have it, you need to know it because you can use it. So I said, uh, I'm allowed as the moderator to speak to this, and here's what I say. I'm not going back. God's given us a new vision to do church for the unchurched. And there I- you go. God's given us a new ver- a vision to do church for pagans. God would never give a vision like that. It contradicts his word. So why is he never going back? Because, listen again. God's given us a new vision to do church for the unchurched, and I'm not going back. So see, there it is. I'm not going back because God's given me a vision. I have a direct revelation from God that God's doing a new thing, and he wants us to do church for pagans. Now, you men can vote to take the church back, and if you vote yes, we want the church to go back to the way we used to do it. I will resign tonight. The other two pastors will resign in the morning. We'll go across the street to the empty field, rent a tent, put it up, and we'll do church for the unchurched next week right here in Fort Lauderdale because that's what God has called us to do. So I, God's called us to do this new thing, and I'm, I'm, sticking to the, I'm sticking to the direct revelation that I have from God, and there's no such thing as a godly critic or a valid criticism because I know that I received a direct revelation from God that he's going to take us in a new direction. And God himself told me, Dan, I want you to do church for pagans. Get to it. Yes, God. These guys are trying to seize the control and direction of the church. What you're sitting in today was at stake in that meeting 12 years ago. The crowd that was here last weekend was at stake in that meeting 12 years ago. And if it's not God's vision. If it's, what, if it's not God's vision. See, God gave him a direct revelation. Then just let it go. But if it is God's vision, you want to fight? Let's fight. That's right. He's, he's got a direct revelation from God and he's going to fight you for it. I don't care what Bible verses you bring up. I got a direct revelation from God. Turn to your neighbor and say, I don't want to fight you, but I will. So he's training the seeker-driven pastors there. <laughs> Here's the sixth point. Glenn's going to do it because I don't know how to do this one. Number, number six, the key number six, don't take criticism personally. Do not take criticism personally this same guy that we talked about Mike and Fanson called me up three days ago or um, three weeks ago and I asked Mike for permission to tell this story Mike called me up and he said he's the pastor of the Cowboy Church Church in Arizona and he said he's right in the middle of a transition listen to this advice and he said I'm quitting I'm giving up I got to stop this. I can't do this anymore. And I said, well, what's up, buddy? Tell me what's going on. He said, everybody in my church hates me. They stood up in a, in a business meeting and they told me that I can't preach or the hill of beans. And they told me this and they told me that. And I said, now, Mike, what I want you to do is back up for a little bit, buddy, and tell me exactly what they said. And he began to tell me the statements that were made. 
And what I realized and recognized that what was happening was that there were some selfish and immature Christians. <laughs> and I may use that term Christians loosely because I'm not sure they were Christians. But there were some selfish and immature people that were taking pot shots at the change that was taking place. And they wanted to go backward, just like Dan was talking about. And what Mike heard... So if you disagree with the seeker-driven changes and the vision, you you may not even be a Christian. You're just a selfish person. You're just selfish. Hear the attitude. Hear what these guys are saying. It's unbelievable. And what Mike heard from that was, they hate me, they don't like me, they want to get rid of me. And these are the words that I said to Mike, and listen to him very carefully. This is not your fight. This is not your battle. This is spiritual warfare. I agree with him. It's spiritual warfare. The problem is, is because they're dealing with a false vision, a false revelation from God, they're not on the side of the biblical God. And any time you want to start impacting the kingdom of God, Satan is going to fight you tooth and nail. He's going to scratch and he's going to, he's going to hit you below the belt. He's going to take every effort that he possibly can to get you discouraged and down and, and, and on the floor. He wants every pastor in the, in the world to be laying on a heap in the living room floor, and I can't get up on a Monday morning because of what happened on a Sunday morning. But I'm telling you this, the minute that you take that and you start fighting back and against that, you've lost the battle. It's not about you. Yep. It's about the change, and it's about what God wants to do in the kingdom and the work that he wants to do. It's about... The king, it's what God wants to do. Remember, your vision, your direct revelation from God. I'm saying to you, do not take the fight up by yourself. Okay, here's the next one. When you, when you face opposition and you are leading, what you're doing is you're being true to what God has called you to do. You're being true to what God has called you. When you've got opposition, you're being true to what God has called you to do. What is that again? The thing he's revealed to you in the direct revelation that God has given to the pastor. You're being true to that vision. And when you're being true to that vision, you're going to lead. Not true to the word, the revealed word of God, true to the vision, the direct revelation from God that you had to earn the right to hear. Through the yeah. opposition, you're not yeah. going to stop and say, I'm going to get down on your level and we're going to fight using these marbles. Mm -hmm. What you're going to say is, I'm going to come up to this level. I'm going to come up to the level of leadership. I'm going to come up to a level of spirituality and I'm going to give this battle to the Lord because it belongs to him. And I'm not going to take this personally, mm -hmm. but I'm going to keep on leading Excuse through me. it. Yeah, keep on leading. Don't listen to it. Basically, the advice is. Don't listen to any opposition. Just expect it. There's no such thing as a godly and valid critic. Not It's not even in their vocabulary. And yet this is propaganda that cuts off the pastor from hearing valid biblical criticism. 
at this point, he's so isolated because, oh, I, I expect opposition because I just heard from God. And so if anyone comes and says, Pastor, wait a second, what you're doing is not biblical. This doesn't jive with what Scripture teaches. Have you taken a look? at? Oh, no, you're just a wolf. You are opposing the vision that I have from God. I shouldn't listen to you. I was told to expect that you were coming. The last one is you keep watching. You keep watching. And, and let me just do this one quickly. Uh, Nehemiah says, we're going to watch. He says, we're going to put guards on the wall and we're going to pay attention. The enemy's coming and we know that. So when I first read that years ago, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a study. Where else in the scripture are we told to watch? And I did a little word search. I love quick verse. Man, what a deal that you can put in one word and find every place it occurs in the Bible. That's cheating, isn't it? I mean, that's just too good. I love that. And, and I looked it all up. I and mean, you used to have to memorize all that stuff, David. You know, now I can just find it. It was great. And, and I put it in and I found the passage over in the Gospels where Jesus says, watch out for the wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, I didn't understand this for a while. I mean, I, I'm from the farm. What- By the way, the context of that is false teachers teaching false doctrine in the church. What I didn't understand was why is Jesus picking on wolves? You know, there are now notice he's just making he's he's quoting something that sounds biblical. Hang on a second here. We're going to do a little bit of biblical work ourselves. Hang on. Looking for the word wolves. Okay. And I want it in the gospels. Hang on a second here. I my search criteria was okay. <clears throat> I'm sending you out a sheep among moles. Go away. Okay. It's Matthew chapter seven. Uh, verse 15 is the one that we want to look at. But again, what are our three rules of uh, of sound biblical interpretation? They are context, context, context. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start at, um, at uh, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life and those who find it are few beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes uh, figs from thistles so every tree that bears good fruit uh, uh, every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit every tree that does not bear fruit good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire thus you will recognize them the false prophets and the ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing by their fruits jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but who the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven and what is the will of the father that we believe in jesus christ the one whom he has sent that's the will of the father so watch how dan sutherland here is completely he's just mentioning the phrase here and now he's completely twisting this passage into saying something that it doesn't say he's twisting the words of jesus to justify not receiving any criticism from anybody because he's received a direct revelation from god in other words by his twisting of this passage that's a bad fruit dan sutherland is showing himself to be a wolf not a sheep or a shepherd
Listen. And I did a little word search. I love quick verse. Man, what a deal that you can put in one word and find every place it occurs in the Bible. That's cheating, isn't it? I mean, that's just too good. I love that. And, and I looked it all up. I and mean, you used to have to memorize all that stuff, David. You know, now I can just find it. It was great. And, and I put it in and I found the passage over in the Gospels where Jesus says, watch out for the wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, I didn't understand this for a while. I mean, I'm from the farm. What I didn't understand was why is Jesus picking on wolves? You know, there are a lot of predators in most areas that... Actually, he's not picking on wolves. He's warning us about false teachers and false prophets who appear like Christians but aren't. That that eat sheep. So I did a little historical research. Are they still shepherding in Israel today? Yes, they are. Has it changed much in 2,000 years? No. The the sheep herding is done up in the hills, same region it would have been in Jesus' time. And and what I found out is there are actually two animals in Israel today, and we're probably two at at the time of Christ, that would eat sheep, that preyed on sheep. One was a wolf. The other was a mountain lion, a cougar type animal, a panther, if you will. So I thought to myself, well, why isn't Jesus picking on the mountain lion? Why doesn't it say, watch out for the mountain lion in wolves' clothing? I think I know. Are you ready? Mountain lions hunt solo. Wolves hunt in packs. Okay, Jesus wasn't making that point at all. Notice how he's just making a reference to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's telling you this long story that doesn't even jive with what Jesus said in context. This is the fruit of a false teacher. You're listening to a wolf. And I'm just going to give you a word here. Your opposition is going to pack up against you. So you got to watch out. You're going to get opposition but it's not, don't worry, it's not your fight, it's God's fight, because God is the one who gave you the new revelation, the direct vision. We continue. Now, I grew up on the farm. Anybody else in here grew up on the farm? Anybody? Maybe y'all can help me. What do you do with a wolf if you're herding sheep? What do you do with a wolf? Thank you. Shoot him. Shoot him. That's the answer. You know what we try to do? We try to convert the wolf. Oh, nice wolfie. Why Here? are you gnawing on my arm? That's it. Quit Why eat. dost thou gnaw on my neck? Yeah. Quit eating my sheep. Right. If you be a good wolfie. Wolf- okay. Jesus was warning against false prophets and false teachers. He wasn't warning CEO Druckerite pastors to uh, that anybody who contradicts or complains about the quote vision that god is going to give him directly that those people are wolves this is a complete abomination that you're listening to we'll let you stay in our church shoot the dang wolf (laughs) folks i'm telling you i've worked sheep i have done the physical work of of herding sheep any shepherd worth his salt carries a rifle and shoots the critters that eat his sheep that quick So there you have Dan Sutherland basically through this scripture twisting, telling lies that God is sitting up in heaven waiting to give your pastor a direct vision from God on how he wants to grow the church. And as soon as the pastor shows himself to be worthy, then God will give him that vision. And then once God has given them the vision, expect opposition. And anybody who comes against that vision is a wolf and you've got to shoot them.
Folks, this creates cult leaders with no accountability. This does not create godly shepherds of God's flock who feed and care for God's sheep. Which is, by the way, after setting this up today, that's why I chose today's sermon cage fight between one man that I know to be a godly shepherd of God's sheep because I was once a member of his congregation, uh, the Reverend William Swirla from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. And he will be uh, in the sermon cage arena, if you the sermon cage, if you would, with Dan Sutherland. And uh, so that's coming up. In fact, after this break, folks, this is very, very serious. This is not a little bit of error. This is a lot of error. We are talking about the complete hijacking and taking over of God's church by men who are twisting God's word and putting in place of godly shepherds. They're putting in cattle ranchers or sheep fleecers with no accountability who are told that if you go against the vision that God has supposedly given them, that you're a wolf. This is very, very serious error that we're dealing with here. This is not something that we can sit on the sidelines and say, well, yeah, it, it, yeah that might sound bad and everything, but you know, it, you know, who am I? No, you got to get into the fight. You're already in the fight, whether you admit it or not. It is time for us to say enough is enough. These people are receiving false visions that are not from God, and they're cutting themselves off from all accountability, and they're not even biblically dealing with who a real uh, wolf is. A real wolf is the one who is teaching false doctrine and who is a false prophet. By the way, claiming that you've received a vision from God, telling you to do a church for pagans, That's an example of a false prophecy that doesn't come from God because it contradicts God's word. We've got a five-alarm fire on our hands in dealing with these Druckerites and their false methods and their defective products that are literally hijacking the, the body of Christ. So, folks, what do you think? I know at the beginning of this special edition, I made some very strong claims, and I think after listening to the sound bites and what I just played for you from Dan Sutherland's Church Transition Seminar, I think it's really easy for you to see the dangers of what it is that churches are facing. These purpose-driven, seeker-driven transition seminars are literally uh, nothing more than a hostile takeover of, of your church. And it's a hostile takeover that doesn't come from God and from heaven above. This absolutely comes from the devil because God does not need to twist his word to convince you to do something in your church. God does not promise your pastor if he makes himself worthy that he can receive a direct vision from God. And church discipline is not when a congregant comes to the pastor and says, Pastor, what you're saying isn't doesn't jive with the scriptures. What you're saying contradicts the scriptures. That's not, that's not somebody who needs to be disciplined. That's somebody who God has sent to you to call you back and keep you accountable. Instead, these guys are basically throwing people out on their ears and saying you need to shoot wolves for doing what? For challenging the new revelation, for challenging the direct vision that supposedly the pastor has. Folks, this is not 
biblical Christianity, and these are not biblical pastoral methods that we're dealing with here. We are talking about blatant lies and a hostile takeover from the devil himself. How can you combat this? First, pray. Second, let everybody you know know about this so that they can know what they're up against. And if you know a church that's thinking about being transitioned, they need to hear this edition of Fighting for the Faith and be warned and know the truth. It is time to say enough is enough with these Druckerites, Warren, Hybels, and Buford, and people like Dan Sutherland, and say, no, we're going to stand on what God's word says and stick to what the scripture says. The job of a pastor is to preach the word, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. They are tasked with the job of discipling, not being CEOs. They are shepherds, not CEOs. Again, the way you help out is by spreading the word and saying enough is enough. Now, if you'd like to listen to my program, uh, my program airs on Pirate Christian Radio on uh, weekdays um, from, well, uh, 6 p.m. until I'm done. That's the best way I can describe it. You can listen live at piratechristianradio.com, or if you'd like to visit my archives for my radio program, they're at fightingforthefaith.com. Well, hope to see you there. Until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen.